0: In chapter three, I want to just read a, a few verses here as we set our minds on where we're, we're going to be spending some time. I don't anticipate doing an exposition of this portion. I anticipate rather getting as far through an overview of the book as I can with you. So I understand I have my work set out for me. I think you'll find uh, I think you'll find it intriguing as we go along through this journey. But in Exodus chapter number three, while you're finding your place, let me uh, just put a, a word out for the Institute and remind those that are taking classes for credit to get your work and things turned into me. Uh, for those who may not know about our Institute, uh, we do have an Institute here that I oversee and administrate, and my heart behind this is to put um, put Bible training into the into the hands of this local church. And um, I want to help people be able to get where they want educationally when it comes to ministry and those kind of things. And so we started an institute, what was it, fall of 2017? I think is when we kicked it off. And uh, so we've had a handful of students enrolled and going through that. And we have it structured so that you can take uh, classes for credit while you're coming to church. And the way that works is if you come on Sunday morning, Sunday afternoon or Wednesday evening, and you follow along with me as I preach verse by verse and teach verse by verse through the scriptures. Then uh, you take notes, and then I give you some assignments uh, to go co- to coincide with that uh, work that you do on listening to the messages and counting those as your lectures. And then so uh, there's also elective classes that we can offer outside of services that you can sign up for and we can make available to. For instance, you want to learn more about biblical counseling, we can give you training in that. You want to learn about discipleship or missions or preaching or that you have a certain elective you want to work towards, we can uh, work to make that happen together. But if you have outstanding work, let me just uh, please uh, urge you get that into me so that I can make notes of that and update transcript records and those kind of things for the students that are enrolled. If you're not enrolled and you'd like to be and you'd like to start now, working on your Bible degree, we can offer a certificate of biblical studies, uh, and uh, that'd be a great journey for you to take. And what better time to start out than when we're opening up a new book of the Bible together, the book of Exodus. And so I'm excited about our institute, thankful for it. And um, you're in Exodus chapter 3, look with me down at verse number 14. God said unto Moses... I am that I am. And he said, Thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, I am hath sent me unto you. And God said moreover unto Moses, Thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, The Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, hath sent me unto you. This is my name forever. And this is my memorial unto all generations. Go. Go. And gather the elders of Israel together and say unto them, The Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac and of Jacob, appeared unto me, saying, I have surely visited you and seen that which is done to you in Egypt. And I have said, I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt unto the land of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites unto a land flowing with milk and honey. And they shall hearken to thy voice. And thou shalt come, thou and the elders of Israel, unto the king of Egypt. And ye shall say unto him, The Lord God of the Hebrews hath met with us, and now let us go. We beseech thee. Three days journey into the wilderness, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. Verse 19, we read these words. And I am sure that the king of Egypt will not let you go. No, not by a mighty hand. And I will stretch out my hand, and smite Egypt with all my wonders, which I will do in the midst thereof. And after that, he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, and it shall come to pass that when ye go, ye shall not go empty, but every woman shall borrow of her neighbor. And of. Her that sojourneth in her house, jewels of silver, jewels of gold, <coughs> raiment, and ye shall put them upon your sons and upon your daughters, and ye shall spoil the Egyptians. Lord, I pray that as we consider this magnificent book titled in our English Bibles as Exodus, the accounting of Moses, of the deliverance of the children of Israel from the hand of Pharaoh. Lord, I pray that you would guide our time in this overview That we would get a glimpse of the bigger workings, the bigger picture of what you did for your people. Lord, I pray that you would guide my thoughts and and help me as I bring forth your word. To say only that which you'd have me to say. Lord, I pray that I would be emptied of self and cleansed of sin and filled with the Spirit. That I might be a blessing to your people as I feed the flock of God that's among me. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 Exodus has been quite an intriguing journey for me over the past, I don't know how many weeks I've been working on this, and I wish I could tell you that I got my outline all done, but uh, I'm not finished yet. I am in saga number six of seven. Yes, I found seven, count them, seven sagas throughout the book of Exodus that I'm going to share with you over the coming weeks and months, and I'm excited about this journey. And it reminded me much of when I started expounding the book of Revelation a few years ago. When I studied and did my original uh, digging into that book and looking at the narrative story of John, the Revelator, as he gave the unfolding of the apocalyptic times of the end days and the judgment of God that would follow on this earth before Jesus Christ comes again, I found there seven sagas. And I have a message. If you listen to it online, you can look it up probably and listen to the seven sagas of Revelation and that will give you an overview of the book of Revelation. It was interesting to note to me that when I came to Exodus and I began to finalize the latter portions of my outline and look and consult different sources and see how they outlined it. And I stand on the shoulders of giants. I don't claim originality. But uh, but my outline, I think, is unique. By the time I get it done, I'm going to put that in your hands. I'll print that out, off for you and uh, just try to be a blessing to you in that way. And you can use it however the Lord would, uh, would see fit in the days ahead as, as you pour over that and, and check my work behind me and see if it breaks where you where, where I'm saying it's breaking, and maybe you want to look at uh, passages a little bit differently, but uh, I think having an outline is going to be a tremendous help, and so I'm going to get as far as I can. I probably won't make it much past uh, the first section of Exodus, the first major section of Exodus that, that I would draw your attention to. If you were to take the whole book of Exodus and uh, and break it down, I think you would do well to take it in at least two major parts. I, I don't know if uh, we would want to split the book in half and have two books, Exodus 1 and Exodus 2. I do think that we need to have the whole content together. That uh, as, is, as Israel is seen in the opening portions of this narrative of Moses, they're in Egypt, And we see that they went down into Egypt. And the time has come now for God to visit His people and bring them out of Egypt. But Pharaoh doesn't want to let them go. And as they're down in bondage and oppression, we see that they're in need of redemption. And the first major segment of the book of Exodus deals with the redemption of Israel, the deliverance of Israel through the Red Sea. And so as you come with them and journey alongside of them out of of Egypt, Through the waters of the Red Sea, you come to the the other bank of the Red Sea after Pharaoh and his army has been drowned in that sea, and they've been delivered by the strong arm of God. Yes, I'm skipping over a lot, aren't I? They're on the other side of the shore now. Where do they go from here? The end goal is for them to be in the promised land. That was promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The covenant promise that God made that He's going to keep. But the rest of the book, that's uh, chapters 1 to 15, and then you have the Song of Moses, and uh, on the other side of of the Red Sea, the, the banks over there, they begin to receive revelation from God. And so if you just hang on those two words, redemption covers the first portion of this story, and it shows us how God brought them out with a strong arm and uh, revealed his glory through his power over Pharaoh in that there's no one like him. He's incomparable. And Pharaoh tried to exert his own will against God, thinking that he could overthrow the very will of God itself. And he found out that it doesn't work that way, that what God says will, will be. And as they come through that, and the Lord delivers them, now they need the further revelation of God. And so the first section would be redemption. The second Major section would be revelation. And I think the Bible Knowledge Commentary helps us with that major breakdown. They might have even used those words redemption and revelation. But uh, I think that's a good way to remember the whole book in and of itself. How did they get into Egypt to begin with? In order for them to need to be saved, they've got to get lost. right? They've got to become a people in bondage before they could ever be in need of freedom. As we think about the book of Exodus and look at our own Christian experience and how the Lord Jesus Christ delivers us through His shed blood, let's note some distinctions between the salvation that we enjoy through Jesus Christ and the salvation that Israel enjoyed from the hand of Jehovah. As the book of Exodus opens, you find out that Israel is already being called the people of God. In fact, this nation was born... Uh, And it it was born through the loins of Abraham. He's the father of faith. And it was by his faith that things began to move towards this nation wherewith would come Messiah. And we get Jesus Christ through the seed of Abraham. He is the promised seed of Abraham, as the book of Galatians tells us. And he is that fulfillment that uh, God said to Abraham, all the nations, all the families of the earth and thee should be blessed. That's through Jesus Christ. He's the ultimate fulfillment of that, but Israel uh, is is in a unique place. As we look at what Jesus did for us, and we compare the pictures that we see in Exodus, we can see there are some common things that we that we can know. We have been saved, and it's God that did it, and He just marvelously, magnificently, in I stand in awe of how He worked salvation for me to save me from my sins and wash me in his own blood. To be not just my atonement for sin, but to be my propitiation for sin. Now Israel is in Egypt. And as we think about their deliverance in comparison to uh, to my deliverance and your deliverance if you're saved by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, they were saved from really... Um, circumstances that they didn't choose uh, an external force was was opposing them and bringing bondage on them and bringing oppression on them and so they weren't really suffering necessarily for things that they did they were suffering because of things that others did to them and this coincides with the history of israel as we've seen her uh, throughout the pages of human history does it not i mean this Book of Exodus is almost a prelude to any other Holocaust kind of scenario you would see Israel in. They didn't choose this necessarily. This happened to them, and it's because of the wickedness and the evil of other people. And God brings them out with a strong arm. When I got saved through Jesus Christ, it wasn't because necessarily of what other people did to me, and I was saved from them. No, I had a very very, uh, personal part to play in that salvation need. Because it was my sin. It was what I did against God that I needed deliverance for. I needed justification because I had broken God's word. And I had violated it. I needed to be saved from inside out, not from the outside in. And as we understand how this all fits together, we see the bigger picture of what God is doing. As they come to the other side of the Red Sea, they've been delivered. And the Red Sea is red for a reason. It's a picture of the blood, right? And that's salvation that we get through the blood. But as they come over on the other shore, now, where do we go from here? The remainder of the book will be at at the base of Sinai. And they go from the sea to Sinai. And at Sinai... God is getting them ready before they go into the promised land. He's going to give them all the instructions, all the codification. Now, you're witnessing the birth of a nation. Go back to 1776, if you will, and go in your mind when our founding fathers of America sat down in a room together and determined that it was time to break the yoke of tyrant leaders. Because they yearned for religious liberty, they yearned for religious freedom. And freedom from tyranny and freedom from taxation without representation and all of these things we think about in our American history books, right? And so we witness the birth of a nation when we study about the founding of our country. When you're studying the book of Exodus, keep that in mind. You are witnessing the unfolding of the birth of a nation. And as this nation is born, this nation will need laws to be governed by, and this nation will be unique and distinct from any other nation on the earth. I am amazed at the book of Exodus, and I don't say that tritely. As I've looked over the laws and just just with the initial digging that I've done, I just, I, I am flabbergasted, I guess, I don't know what other word to use, at the intricacy and the detail and how long ago this was written. And then I can consult ancient Near Eastern texts and I can go to the Code of Hammurabi and I can put it alongside of the book of Exodus and I can see that Exodus is far superior. Far superior. I don't know that there would be anything in this day and time that we could even unearth that would even compare to the laws that Jehovah gave to this nation. I've challenged uh, recently in a message, I forget which one it was now, but uh, it might have been Sunday where I talked about the code of law down here in our state capitol buildings. Almost every room, you've got a voluminous shelf full of Colorado state law. And you can turn through those pages. I've done it. I've sat down some of the time I've had down there and just flipped through some of it. I didn't get very far, mind you, but... Uh, what time I did get, I can look through paragraphs here and paragraphs there. I can see bills that are put forward and then they become law. And I can read that text and I can see there's, there's places in the Bible where it's not word for word, mind you, but the laws were fashioned out of this template in many ways, many ways. And it covers every area of their society that they're going to need to be a full-fledged nation. And so as we approach Exodus, we do so with humility. We look at the first part and we see the redemption. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord as Moses raises that rod. Keep your eye on that rod because that's a picture uh, that God is giving of his power to deliver and save. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. Uh, If you want the the full break on this, this will be Exodus 1-1 all the way to Exodus 18-27. Exodus 1-18. to Is the redemption aspect. The first saga, I mentioned there's seven sagas that I found. The first saga that I would share with you would be the bondage, oppression, and the providence of God. That's seen in Exodus chapter 1 through 11. Exodus 1 through 11. We see Israel in Egypt suffering under the oppressive hand of a Pharaoh that knew not Joseph. Again, how did they get to this place? Genesis closed with Israel going down into Egypt. Seventy souls went down into Egypt with Jacob. And now they've been there for uh, the 400 years according to the prophecy that Jehovah gave Abraham. And Joseph has died. The instrument that God used to get his people down into Egypt has passed off the scene. And we're not given the details of what happened in human history in that time, but Israel's history, we know. There arose a Pharaoh that knew not Joseph. And he began to look at the size of this people group now within his country, within his own borders, living in Goshen. And he looked at how numerous they had become. Did God promise that would happen? Yes, he did. And now they're multiplying. Some have put the number upwards to 2 million people that they've been able to multiply up to by this point, from 70 to 2 million. That's huge. That's massive. I mean, that's like Metro Denver, at least. Probably, I don't know what the census will be this year. It's probably a portion of Metro Denver by now from the last census. But when I did the demographics for Broomfield, there were 2.5 million people in Metro Denver. Not the city itself, but Metro Denver had two and a half million people in it. So take Metro Denver in 2010 and try to put them in Goshen and then bring them out and wander them in Sinai. That's the group of people, the size of the group of people that we're talking about. And this Pharaoh becomes, he he begins to feel threatened by their presence. And he feels like he has to put them under his thumb and he oppresses them in a hard way, and so through this we understand there's a backdrop, isn't there? There's a backdrop to how Israel wound up in bondage. They began to prosper in Egypt, and Pharaoh is provoked to oppress them because of how well they're doing, and he's fearful for his own uh, his own uh, selfish policies. And so he begins to put forward policies. Some of those policies he introduces would be that of progressive genocide against Israel. But I'm thankful that Moses records an account here of two God-fearing midwives that feared God more than Pharaoh and said, I know this is what the law is, and this is uh, what Pharaoh said we've got to do, but you know what? Um, We're just going to have a convenient excuse as to why we couldn't obey that law. And they were supposed to take care of those male Hebrew children when they were first born. And what I mean by take care of them is to put them to death. And this was nothing short of genocide against Israel. It's it's atrocious to think that people could pass laws like this, but you know what? There are regimes, and there are nations that are in governance right now as we speak that have oppressive policies, and they may be towards specific ethnic or religious groups. And these... Regimes, these tyrant leaders, are thinking that they can call the shots. And I wish they would just learn a lesson from Pharaoh. I'll ask you to pray for China. I've sent some reports over to you because your brother is out there now. And, um, uh, you know, our president just made the, the first steps in a trade deal with China. Maybe you saw that come through the headlines today. Uh, that we're taking first steps to get things where they need to be. Uh, it's just the beginning, I understand, but the door might be opening for that. And you can search the headlines on that. I won't take the time to do that here. But come February first, anyone who is uh, who is in China that is religious is going to have to come under the communist regime and have to promote the communist uh, the communist ideology, the communist religion of China. No matter who you are, across the board. And some of the reports even went so far as to say that there's a panel a group that the, the leader of China is putting together that's going to actually go through, get this, they're going to go through and rewrite anything that, uh, that brings different ideas than the communist religion and the communist agenda that the country has. Which means books like the Quran are going to come under their purview. And yes, it's even been purported that the Bible is going to come under their purview. And they're They are talking right now about rewriting the Bible to fit their communist religion. I wish they'd just read Revelation 22. You need to pray for what's going on over there. Because I'll tell you who's going to have the last word. She might think he's going to have the last word on this, but he's dead wrong. It's happened before and it'll happen again. And God's word will stand true in the end. And I'm no prophet or the son of the prophet. I just read the Bible and see how it it, it comes forth. You can't alter this. You can't change this. It's forever settled in heaven. And no matter what men might try to do to it, it remains God's word forever. And it is purified seven times. We can learn so much from this blessed book. But uh, we need to pray for our missionaries that are over there because they're going to come under severe oppression, persecution perhaps, uh, this is this is something that really really bothers me. But we have things that are happening today. We think that, you know, some Pharaoh in a far distant land, you know, thousands and thousands of years ago, we read this like it's fairy tales. Things are happening like this today. Leaders really get to the point where they can make decisions like this Pharaoh's making and commit genocide against people. And this pharaoh does that. These are progressive genocide policies that he puts against Israel but then you have the god-fearing midwives because God is providentially man he moves and so that's the backdrop of the bondage and the Lord then raises up a deliverer for his people and we see this beginning in chapter number two of Exodus all the way uh, through chapter 4 uh, verse 26 the Lord raises up a deliverer and uh, his name is Moses this is a this is a An instance of divine irony, is it not? I mean, get this, okay? Here's a Pharaoh saying, I'm going to take it upon me to make sure all the Hebrew male children are killed. And I'm going to put this task on the midwives. He's got two midwives that he names here. They feared God, and God blessed them for it. It says God built them a house. That's interesting. I can't wait to study that deeper with you. These midwives fear God. So here because this man has this mindset against God, now God is going to come on the scene and he's going to use that very policy to undermine exactly what that Pharaoh's doing. He's going to use one of the males, the Hebrew males that he's going to save providentially from that Pharaoh's hand. And he's going to raise that Hebrew child up, that Hebrew male child up, to then get the best over Pharaoh. I think about the time when our Savior hung, suspended between heaven and earth, and he cried the words, it is finished. Maybe you've read the books that, like I have that talk about the devil and his, and his minions rejoicing the day Jesus Christ gave up the ghost and died because they thought they had victory, but he didn't stay dead. And it's through that divine irony that we see God gets the last word, and he overcame, and he is the overcomer. And Moses, Moses is the first deliverer that God will give Israel. And he is a picture of the one that will come. And uh, he prophesies of that one that will come. Remember Jesus when he walked this earth. He challenged the religious leaders of his day. Search the scriptures. He said, you believe Moses and the prophets. He says, they testified of me. Moses testified of Jesus Christ. And through his life, we see God's going to use him. And Jesus Christ isn't greater than Moses. He's greater than Aaron. He's greater. His priesthood is after Melchizedek, not after the Levitical priesthood. He's superior in all ways. But you see how the Bible's preparing us to see who our Savior is. And the Lord raises up this deliverer for his people. His name is Moses. And we see the early years of his providential protection. Chapter 2, verses 1 to 22, you have his birth, and then they... They come up with a name. Pharaoh's daughter names him because of the water that he's in. She finds him in the bulrushes. And, yeah, it's an interesting thing there, too, about when mom's done all she could do and she doesn't know what else to do. And she just takes, really, by faith, and places this baby in this basket, puts him in the bulrushes. She has to give that child over to God. And that very child is going to come back to her arms, by the way. That's just an interesting twist on the on the whole story. You see a mother's intuition and a daughter's compassion and a son's failure. The next uh, instance we see of Moses is him trying to take matters into his own hands. and He's burdened for his Hebrew brethren. that he sees he's been raised in Pharaoh's house and he sees this Egyptian treating the Hebrew the wrong way and takes matters into his own hands and this son makes a uh, has a huge failure. And I, I've just called him in my outline, Moses, the murderous mediator. And he flees to Midian. Moses and Midian. And there, you know, he's able to be the hero and save uh, Mid- and save Jethro's daughter and, and he marries her and there's a whole uh, narrative that surrounds that. And he spends the next 40 years of his life now he's going to be 80, right? Because the first 40, he was with Pharaoh raised in Pharaoh's house and then he flees to Midian for the next 40 years of his life. And he builds a family out there and just life continues and he tried to do it in, in his own time, but God had his time that he was going to work. And in chapter 2, verse 23, God begins to move. As Moses is on the backside of the desert there in Midian, and has a family and everything seems to be going well. Now is when the Lord shows up. And you see Moses now, he's going to get his calling. He's going to get a commission, but he's a reluctant man. I, I don't know if I would blame him. I mean, here, he's been in Midian for 40 years because of what happened in Egypt, why would I ever want to go back there? I, I don't know. I, I think I would. I would have some struggles, and I would probably be just as uh, just as reluctant as Moses. I would hope I would do it differently than him when he stood before the Lord. And hindsight's always 20-20, right? You don't know how you're going to act until you're in that circumstance. So let's not throw too many stones at Moses, because we haven't been in our own burning bush yet, and he's going to get the call. Jehovah hears and remembers. And specifically, he says that it's time. I've heard their cries and it's time to deliver. But it's interesting to me that when he said that, he had already promised that he would even before Moses was on the scene. And our God is sovereign. It's it's powerful. And Moses meets Jehovah at the burning bush. And throughout our studies together, you'll note that I use the word Jehovah rather rather than Adonai or um Uh, Yahweh. I don't use Yahweh. I use Jehovah because uh, that is the way that I believe we should pronounce it according to what we read in the the Masoretic text. And so if you uh, see commentaries and things using the term Yahweh, just know that they have gone the critical route of looking at uh, manuscript evidence and things. I won't get into that here. But uh, Moses meets Jehovah. He meets him at the burning bush. This is chapter 3 and the I am commissions Moses to go back and deliver his people. Moses has his first excuse. This one I just simply called, Jehovah said go, but Moses said no. And that's chapter 3, verses 7 to 12. Then he brings a second excuse. The Lord uh, deals with his first excuse, and his Moses' second excuse, I just termed it this way, well, I don't know your name. They don't know your name. How are they going to listen to me? Who am I? That's his third excuse. The second excuse is followed up by God's personal reassurance of his presence. The I am's, the passage that we read when we began, Personal reassurance. Moses, you can go do this because I'm going to be with you. I am that I am. And Moses, not only will I be with you, but I promise you Israel will accept you. All these fears you have about them not listening to you, and them not receiving you, don't worry about that. I'm going to take care of all of that. Basically, I'm paraphrasing what God told him, but Israel is a promised to receive and accept Moses, which would deal with how he left, right? Because, what, are you going to kill me like you did that Egyptian and bury me in the sand? Moses thought that nobody knew about that. And they didn't really receive him that first time he tried this. He's going to need this reassurance from Jehovah. His third excuse, well, if I go, you know, so God has dealt with telling him go and he said no and then Moses said well, I don't know your name, I don't know who to tell him. It sent me and then this third excuse, even if I go they're not going to listen to me. Why should they listen to me? This is chapter 4 verses 1 through 17 and God then gives Moses three signs to demonstrate his power that he will, he will work in and through Moses. But then Moses of course has the Passage progresses, it just gets worse and worse. If Moses would have just said, okay, Lord, then it could have been over. But now Moses needs a mouthpiece. I can't talk. I can't speak. And so God raises up Aaron to be able to speak on behalf of Moses. And I just call this a mouthpiece for Moses. And that's chapter 4, verses 10 to 12. And then we have that account where Moses says, I, I can't speak. I'm not eloquent and all those things. Which Stephen tells us a different story about that in the book of Acts. Uh, Moses was quite the eloquent speaker, and so this is just another excuse again. But in essence, now Moses, at the end of it all, says, here am I, send him. And uh, that's just funny. Moses then, he finally returns to Egypt with the help of Aaron, his brother. He says, okay, we'll go back. And Egypt is calling. In chapter 4, verses 18 to 23, you find there's a father-in-law's blessing. I... I appreciate Moses' wisdom in this. He goes back uh, home to his wife and family, talks talks it over with Jethro's father-in-law, and he leaves Midian with Jethro's blessing. He says, go back to Egypt. It's going to be all right. You go do what you need to do. And um, I think Moses was able to really um, testify and witness to Jethro about who Jehovah was in a powerful way. And he leaves with the father-in-law's blessing and also with the Lord's guidance. In the last part of chapter number four, you see that. And then an interesting uh, case study here. As Moses begins to return to the promised land, you have a wife's intervention for a bloody bridegroom And we'll cover that when we come to it. But uh, thank God for the intuition of our better halves, (laughs) man. If you're married and you have a a good godly wife, thank the Lord for that. She has an intuition. You just need to trust that. And and so you see Moses' wife has a little bit of an intervention episode there. uh, On the behalf of Moses and her testimony is, well, it's interesting. We'll just leave it right there. Moses and Aaron, they finally get their reunion. And you have some brothers who reunite, a brotherly reunion. And a national reception. Hey, it happened just like God said it would. He promised Israel would receive him. And when Moses goes back, yes, he's got Aaron as his mouthpiece. But as God said, Israel accepted him. And there's a national reception. As Moses comes back to be the deliverer that God raised up. And the Lord now, notice it's the Lord that I'm using. Jehovah is going to confront Pharaoh through his deliverer. He's going to work in and through Moses. I mean, couldn't God have just showed up himself? He showed up in a burning bush. Couldn't God have just gone into Pharaoh's court himself and said, Pharaoh, you're going to let my people... But isn't it interesting that God uses a man to further his will. And he doesn't negate his servants. He doesn't go around and he uses vessels that are surrendered to him. And uh, you have the first confrontation in Exodus chapter 5. With um, with Pharaoh and Moses and Pharaoh's first meeting with Moses and Aaron, Aaron he basically comes with this question: Who is the Lord? Wasn't well, that kind of what Moses said would happen? Uh, I don't know your name. They're not going to listen to me. And that's exactly what Pharaoh said: Who's the Lord that I should obey him? Who does he think he is to tell me what to do? I'm the Pharaoh. I'm the one who calls the shots in this land. This is my realm. This is my domain. Who is the Lord? Who is Jehovah? Who is this Jehovah? And in the next seg- segment, you see, because they're coming to ask Pharaoh to let them go and worship, Pharaoh begins to investigate a little bit and comes up with the wrong conclusion. And I just titled this section, At Idleness is the Pharaoh's Playground. You'll think through that in a minute and see the play on words. Working with no straw stinks. There's a stench that comes with no straw. Pharaoh said they're idle. They're idle. And they're asking to go play. You know what? If they're that idle, then just take the straw away from them and don't lower the amount of bricks that we've asked them to make to build Python and Rehamses. Re- Re- Those are the cities that they're building for Pharaoh. And the, the, the labor becomes toil like you've never, be, never seen. And they, they just get weary under the yoke and they're begging for mercy. They're pleading for mercy, and they're they're finding the whip because Pharaoh is is so hard on them. Idleness is the Pharaoh's playground. And then Moses comes with some hard questions for Jehovah, Lord. How's this going to work? There's some things that he comes really with an open heart before Jehovah, and and is is wondering how God's going to move. That is the first saga of the book. And with that, I think that's all the time I really have to cover with you. We've only covered the first saga. There's six more. The next saga will unfold as Israel becomes liberated from Pharaoh's bondage. And we'll see God move in a mighty way to set his people free. And what a picture we have of our Lord Jesus Christ, that left heaven above, and came and humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross, he became our Moses, spiritually speaking. And he's the one that conquered our Pharaoh, that wicked oppressor, whose name is Satan and the devil and the old accuser of the brethren, who looks at us and and brings hard bondage onto us, who looks and finds ways that he can thwart the will of God being done. And then our Our flesh and the world that stand in the way of this spiritual battle that we rage. Thank God we have the victory through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let's not negate the fact, though, that many people suffer until we get to heaven. And maybe, maybe you've got a heaviness. It was mentioned earlier that we can cast all our care upon him for he cares for us. And if you're in a time of uh, oppression, you know, if you're saved, the devil cannot inhabit you. He cannot indwell you. He cannot possess you. But the devil sure can oppress you if you're saved. And he can bring circumstances with God's allowance. Read the book of Job. He can bring things along that it just seems like a wicked, wicked taskmaster is is working and moving behind the scenes and maybe you feel like you're just trying to live for God. You're just trying to serve God but now the straw's all gone and you're still trying to make the same amount of bricks as you were before and you just don't know what to do, when you're up against the rock in a hard place, the place to look is up. Cast your care upon the Lord, for He cares for you. And let Him be your deliverer. But don't look at it as, oh, I need salvation from all these things that are happening outside of me. I really hope and pray and trust that you will look deep down inside and see the reason you wound up in spiritual Egypt to begin with. How did you get down there? How did you get away from God? How did you get separated from Him all the way down in Egypt? It's because of sin. That black blot on your life, that's the real deliverance you need. You need to be saved from your sins through the blood of Jesus Christ. And that comes by faith. And believing what He did for us on Calvary, He set us free. And so if you'll trust Him, if you'll call on Him, you'll find Him to be a friend that sticketh closer than a brother. You'll find Him to be the answer for your soul's greatest desire. You'll find Him to be that spiritual nourishment you need, that bread from heaven, that everlasting life, that water of life that He gives freely. And something will happen deep down inside of you, like a well will just start springing up. And it will bring forth water, and it will spill over into the lives of others if you'll let it. And if you'll be filled with the Holy Spirit, he'll use you.